0: Hello, Los Angeles arts community and beyond. You're listening to Artbreak, a podcast by Independent Shakespeare Company. I'm your host, Carolina Sique. In today's Artbreak, co-founders of ISC David Melville and Melissa Chausma explore the bubonic plague during Shakespeare's era. While discussing how his references apply to today's pandemic, they bring on a special guest, Andre Martin, a crowd favorite here at ISC with 14 productions under his belt. We've also included a reading of Sonnet 55 performed by William Elsman.
1: Hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. Hello. We hope that you are all uh, doing well during this very curious time we find ourselves in. It's really hard to believe that just, was it just less than two weeks ago, I think, we were actually deciding to postpone our production of Macbeth.
2: Yeah, which is supposed to open tomorrow night.
1: Really hard to believe. It seems so much longer. It's as though time has really been compressed these past few days, and feels like uh, it was so much longer ago. Hard to believe how much everything really has changed in that time for how we're living our lives. You know, our, our kids are out of school. We're working. We're working from home.
2: Not well, go- our theater is closed, and not just ours, but every single theater mm. across the country, and 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 even large. Parts of the globe are closed now. Isn't that just incredible? That could happen. You know, we were were just wondering whether we should be performing just not even two weeks ago. It's amazing. Um,
1: So we all hope that you all are finding ways to occupy yourselves and keep the anxiety at bay and do social distancing (laughs) in a way that doesn't leave you sad and lonely. it's been a, definitely a balancing act at our house. David and I are married, so we we, we, we can social distance together, which is nice. Um, we're at home with our two kids, and uh, they're finding ways to occupy themselves. Uh, Felicity, our daughter today, made a dress for her cat, hand-sewed a dress for her cat. We should, oh, we'll get a picture of it, and we'll post it on our Instagram. It's pretty funny. Uh, what's Henry been up to all day, David?
2: Henry's been mastering uh, Roblox and Minecraft. <laughs>
1: oh no!
2: Henry's much more sort of adept, though. He, ha- he actually has quite an active online life, and he can communicate with all of his mm. friends. And he's been doing that for a while, so it's not such a tough adjustment for him. I
1: have to say, too, his his school. Those of you who have kids in school know our teachers have been doing what an amazing thing they've had to do to basically generate an entire online curriculum. For our kids, I'm really his school. I'm really impressed with what they've done, um, and I'm sure a lot of you are having that same experience. So, big shout out to the teachers.
2: So yeah, and quarantine isn't all bad, is it? I mean, this <laughs> gives, gives you a chance to to, <laughs> oh, no. to get to some of those things oh, no. that you've been meaning to do. I've been meaning to put down a hardwood floor in Henry's room, which I was going to do in January, and then it took me into February, and then I had a personal emergency, I had to run back to England, and then I came back like I, I could get it finished now. And now we're locked in the house and. And I'm getting through it, but I'm rationing myself because it's the one chore I know I can complete. So I'm doing one board a day at the moment.
1: Right. Yeah, you know, that reminds me, David, seeing, a, you know, I'm trying to take social media breaks now because I find it just increases my anxiety. But uh, I was initially, we saw, I'm sure a lot of you saw too that the tweet that was going around of, you know, when Shakespeare was quarantined, he wrote King Lear, and then, th- then, then, if you if you felt as though you weren't living up to quarantine, then the next tweet was, and also Macbeth and Antony and Cleopatra and the sonnets. And the sonnets, it's yeah, like good lord. <laughs> and I and I, so I, I, what we, what we, started thinking about that and and wanting to know, um, a, was that true, and b, what are some of the implications of that that that, and the fact of the plague on Shakespeare's world and his writing. So we thought we'd talk about that today in this episode of. Uh, art break. Yes, yeah, to so take
2: everyone's mind off what's happening, we're going to do an episode about the plague. So, so, uh, so the plague in Shakespeare's day was was something that they had to deal with. Um, you know, it wasn't just a, a one in a hundred year occurrence. It was mm-hmm. uh, something that was happening all of the time. And I think uh, it might be true to say that the theaters were more often closed due to the plague than they actually got to perform. Uh, and it happened with a alarming regularity. Um, but there aren't that many references to the plague in Shakespeare's play, are, are there? I mean, there's, there certainly aren't any plays that are, uh, you know, the, the main plot or anything is about the plague. Can you think of any, Melissa? The one
1: that uh, comes to mind is really Romeo and Juliet that has um, some very, very famous line, a plague on both your houses, which is Mercutio as he's, after having been stabbed by Tybalt, uh, Wells defending Romeo. <laughs> anyway, it's kind of, a, is that right? That's the, right? Tybalt stabs Mercutio. How long has it been since we've last produced this play? Oh God, oh I it was 2014,
2: 2015. <laughs> I can't remember yeah. when we did that one.
1: So Mercutio, so he says that a couple of times during that scene. And then in the famous speech Mercutio has about Queen Mab, he also brings up the plague, uh, blisters plaguing a woman's lips, which I'm assuming is something to do with the plague or maybe that's a herpes because it's about getting it from kissing a lot so okay we're going to we have to look we'll we'll have to look at that google that um and uh then also there's a curious little inter you know in speech in there that um talks about the plague and the, what it meant to be locked into a plague house um so this this uh, you know thinking about that made me think about um Andre Martin doesn't it doesn't remind you of Andre The Plague? Not the Plague. (laughs) Thinking about Mercutio, because he played Mercutio during that summer production in Griffith Park, which was one of my favorite plays we did, actually. Um, It was a really, really joyous production. Really, yeah, it was just such a beautiful thing. And wasn't that uh, one of the things that was some happy memory of this to bring back was, was it the Supreme Court ruling that for marriage equality? That happened during that production. Yeah. Oh, really? And there was a big celebration that night in the park. We were performing that night, and um, Andre came out, and he would do the opening greeting to the audience at sort of as Mercutio and kind of say, you know, all the rules about the park, which aren't there aren't that many of them, but mainly don't smoke, you know, and, and uh, you know, where the bathrooms were and stuff. But um, that night he was able to kind of just say, we're so glad to welcome you on this beautiful day when – in this country, love belongs to everyone, and the whole crowd just like wrote it's like massive cheer, oh, yeah, and it was such a beautiful um, message and um, such a beautiful moment. So that's a beautiful memory of live theater. Um, you know, this is making me really nostalgic for Andre. I feel like I feel like we should try to call him.
2: You want to call Andre? I do.
1: I want to call Andre. He might be busy
2: though. I mean, he might be out doing something. I mean, he's not just going to be at home.
1: Uh, well, let's. Should we find out?
2: Okay, you're going to call him?
1: I'm going to call him right now on my phone. We'll see. How does that We'll see. Should I just hold it up to the microphone I think if he that, answers? Yes,
2: no, I don't think we have that advanced right. technology out here in Eagle Rock.
1: Speakerphone. Right. <laughs> can turn up the volume. Let's see. Is that picking it up?
2: Yes, yeah, I can hear it.
1: He's, no, he's <laughs> I not he going to answer, is he?
2: Bonjour. <laughs>
1: It's, oh. it's, it's André Martin. Oui, bonjour.
2: It
3: is André Martin. That's correct. How are
1: you going? I have to tell you, I have you on speakerphone. Okay. And uh, we're recording you. Oh, wonderful. And then we're going to let people listen to this. Okay. We'll be inviting them to listen. So just so you yeah. know, you're, you, you are being recorded. Don't say anything okay. too inappropriate.
3: <laughs> okay. So we're keeping it PG somewhat?
1: Yes, somewhat PG. I think somewhat we can PG. go PG-13.
3: PG-13 okay, okay. PG-13. That
1: helps. Um so Andre, you uh, how you are in Austin. So do you want to what's what's oh first of all, those of you that maybe don't Remember, I don't know how anyone could forget Andre, oh. but Andre acted with us for many, many summers um, in Griffith Park and also did shows in the studio with us and um, is, was a huge audience favorite, uh, those of you that remember him, of course, will remember him fondly (laughs) from his performances and uh someday we'll get him back so all of you who have not yet had a chance to see him perform will get that opportunity what are some
2: andre highlights he played uh um serrano de bergerac inside in his
1: his own translation and adaptation of the play
2: one of of the skinniest ever serranos
1: Serrano, not supposed to be skinny?
2: I think he's often played as quite fast, I mean, or am I just thinking of Gerard Depardieu?
1: I think, oh, yes, you're thinking oh, of Gerard Depardieu. I should play him again, I should play him now, because I've definitely put on a couple
2: pounds. I think we all have in this last week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, like Christmas without any of the presents or, or fun, but <laughs> all the alcohol.
1: Oh, dear. <laughs> And Andre, see, Andre has also played. He played Dogberry. He played Pericles.
2: What was the one where you peed all over the side of the stage? What was that one?
1: I don't
3: remember peeing. Uh, I was.
1: Well, I remember the. Uh, uh,
3: we had. A it was nice, Baraccio, uh,
2: wasn't it, in Much Ado?
3: Oh gosh, um, you know, I do remember. We we threw pies in each other's faces in. Uh, in Love's Labor's Lost. Oh, that's as, right. Um, oh. Don Armado. I, Don Armado for that one.
2: I
1: believe you ran through the audience with your bare bottom. <laughs> in Love's Labor's <laughs>
2: Lost. There's so many complaints about that. Well, <laughs> and many. some fan mail.
1: <laughs> fan mail and complaints in equal measure for your bottom. Yeah. Yeah. That was
3: a good one. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: so we're th- so you're in Austin now.
3: So I'm in Austin, Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, situated in Austin, Texas. Um, it's going pretty good. I mean, I think it's it's all a little scary right now. We're all in, in slightly uh, uncertain times and uncharted territories, and, and not really sure what to expect. But I, I think we're like, I think we're like a couple of days behind you guys in terms of, uh, you know, what's going to happen uh, with uh, lockdowns and and social distancing and people staying home. So I, I think. Just in terms of like the, the laws and the things that are being imposed on us, I think we're just a couple of days behind you guys.
2: How are you guys the, holding up? The theaters are all closed there, aren't they?
3: Yeah, they did close. And actually today they announced uh, the alley uh, had to had to lay off about 75% <gasps> oh, uh, oh. of their staff uh, over in Houston, oh, which is my a big God. one. I mean, it's kind of like the big theater here in, in Texas. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're, 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 hurting. we're hurting theatrically. Yeah.
2: But on the brighter side, Andre, let's talk <laughs> on about the plague. side, <laughs> on the <brighter> side <laughs> have, uh,
1: so we were we were we were thinking about Romeo and Juliet because that was one of the um, plays where there are actually are mentions about the plague. Um, we were noting that even though David was saying it was such a common occurrence in Shakespeare's time, but in fact, he he doesn't really bring it up very much in his actual work. So we were um, trying to think about the, the plays where it's mentioned. And, of course, you famously, as Mercutio, have one of the most famous lines, I think, from Romeo and Juliet is, do you remember what it is, Andre?
3: Yeah, no, of course I remember what it is. And, and you know, I'd be so curious to find out what some of the other plays that, that actually use the word plague Um what those are and i'll be totally candid melissa and i chatted briefly before and brought up this whole idea of romeo and juliet
1: andre and you're I'm breaking my- the mystique what? that we just called you <laughs> 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 you're breaking <laughs> the illusion no, no, no.
3: do you want to keep playing into the illusion no we can we can play no, with it, the illusion it, it's
1: okay it's okay it it it, the damage um, has been done andre. the fourth
2: wall is down it's destroyed oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: you've taken
2: <laughs> the yeah, second I and third baller really
3: breaking that fourth wall dude.
2: <laughs> 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 so
3: you. um but it got my it got my brain uh really kind of percolating and uh i i remember at the time because it was it was such i loved doing that play um i can't remember what year we did romeo and juliet in the park but we've done it in the studio as well and then playing mercutio i mean it's like it's one of those most iconic lines and i think there's a part of me you know as an actor that's like i get to say this really popular really famous iconic line that that's said so often and you just kind of uh you live in that kind of <laughs> uh a moment of just being able to be the person i guess to say it right a plague on both your houses right um i just saw someone post something on facebook that <laughs> was i think it was Lee Ernst actually who wrote uh oh no now we got two plagues <laughs> on our house i've <laughs> got COVID 19 and trump um but it's such it, yeah it's such an iconic line and um it just resonates completely differently right now doesn't it Yeah, uh, I wonder
1: what it would feel like. I mean, even just saying it now would probably do you think that would change your experience of saying it to think that because I think for us, plague, when I heard that line, you know, when we were producing it, it feels very metaphorical, like a metaphorical plague, bad things to both your houses. But in fact, Shakespeare could have meant it very, you know, that would really have been a fearful curse. Yeah. To,
3: to, and I, I like that you said could have. I mean, here's the thing. I'm all, The more I thought about it, the more I was kind of embarrassed that I didn't go further with it. Right. The more <laughs> I was kind of like, I think I did just tell myself in my head that it was like, oh, bad thing on your houses times 100, that it was like this horrible thing to say, but I had no context of what I was really saying. It was something that was kind of a an afterthought.
1: Right. Mm, yeah.
3: And then, and then I think of you know when you when you say a line like that, I was I was trying to think back as to when it happened in the scene and the way that we had crafted it on stage. Tybalt was already dead. Um, Tybalt had been killed, and I think the the first time Mercutio utters it is when he well well, the way that we had directed the way that we had crafted it was he was he was dying and he was in Romeo's arms. Does
1: that sound right, Melissa? I really
2: don't remember. Yes, that's how I remember it.
1: That's that's kind of how I remember it
3: as well. And I I think there were there were some nights where I just kind of directed it up to the sky. <laughs> mm. And I feel really I I there's a part of me now today with this completely different context that goes, "Ah, that was so lazy, Andre. Why did you do that?" You just kind of threw that away. I mean, imagine if you were to replace the word plague with Covid nineteen, a Covid nineteen on both your houses. You know, people would probably like audiences would probably like, oh God, dude, why, why would you say that? Like, that's really messed up. Like, how could you, how could you wish Covid nineteen on not just one family but two families? Like, that's really messed up. And and I think just our, uh, you know, so there's two things, right? There's two things. There's there's a how the audience would receive it, right? Like what, what the reaction to the audience was. I mean, obviously everything that Shakespeare wrote was meant to the audience and for the audience. But there's also, who's Mercutio actually directing that line to in that scene? You know, is, is he directing it, you know, straight to the audience? Or is he directing it more to, to Romeo? I don't know. But it's getting my brain thinking again, going, oh gosh, you know, as an actor, maybe there were things I could have done. I don't even know what, what the symptoms of, was it the bubonic plague? Guys, the bu- it... yeah
2: the bubonic plague or the Black Death, which was and
3: all I remember from the Black Death was it was like fleas, right? Like, didn't people get flu There were fleas symptoms? that
2: that specifically lived on black rats, uh, oh, many the rats. of whom came over in in on ships from Europe. Gotcha,
3: gotcha. And do you know what the symptoms were? Like, did did people have similar like flu-like?
2: Causes? No, it was it was a little worse. I mean, obviously. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was much, much, there was much higher death rate. The symptoms were that you would get, um, sores, um, or buboes, kind of black pustule things on your armpits and groin. You would get a racing in your heart, um, and an incredible thirst, and then, then you'd die. Uh, Um, Some people survived it, a very few, but, um.
1: And it actually is a disease that's still around, but now it's treatable.
2: Uh, now it's treatable, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, now they know but what I, it is. I mean, but yeah. then they had no idea what caused it. Mm. They 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 thought that it came from the miasma that was around people and and uh, uh, and that came out of uh, rotting flesh and things like that. They didn't. They just didn't really quite know. But they did know.
1: Is that why people would have a posy over their nose to keep it sweet smells?
2: I, I think that was more just because. Um, things didn't but smell ring around
1: th- the rosy, a pocket full of posy. We'll
2: oh yeah, that. yeah. Yeah. Is
1: that where that's Ashes, from? Ashes, we all fall down.
2: Yeah. So uh That's yeah, from the Black
1: Death? I think so. Uh, I I'm, I'm gonna Google that though and- Well
2: pe- people would ca- yeah. carry uh things to, to make the air smell sweeter because it didn't smell very good, but also because they believed that you could um you could catch all sorts of things through foul air. Hmm. Um uh not necessarily just the plague. But you know those strange. You know when you see the the pictures of the plague doctors that have these yeah. weird beaks and those, these, the, these the, the masks, strange. Yeah. yeah, these strange eyes that they were like sort of birds. Well, the reason why there's a beak like that is because they would stuff it full of um, uh, all sorts of herbs and spices. I think I have a list of them here. Hold on. Uh, yes, they, the, the the herbs and spices that would they would stuff into their beaks included juniper berry, ambergris. Uh, roses, mint, camphor, cloves, laudanum. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if you got any work done with laudanum stuffed down your snout. Uh, myrrh and storax.
1: And this was to protect them from the miasma? Yeah, I guess that, 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 that
2: purified the air that they were breathing it was like in. A like a gas mask. Yeah, it was kind of like a modern like face mask, I guess.
3: Right? Yeah. yeah.
1: Only full of... Full of not, spices. Nothing that of, would actually help.
2: A lot of I stuff guess. that they eventually used to make gin apart from ambergris you know what ambergris is what ambergris it's from a whale yes. yeah it's like something from the whales <laughs> has i
3: sent you that picture david on facebook those masks are terrifying and i think your the next musical that you're writing i think you should include some of these masks
2: i think the next musical i write is gonna be anything other than this subject <laughs> i gonna write a happy musical that children can go to that'll be a first I am,
3: assum- I am assumptively pitching the new musical
1: that's you guys are writing <laughs> You heard it here world. first, everybody. You heard it here first, guys. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I'm... Um, yeah.
3: The, you know, I, I was going to just, I was going to say, I I remember as an actor, and this is kind of from like an actor's perspective, laying in I think, Nikhil's arms and saying those lines and kind of like, I think he, I think Mercutio said it a couple times. I think He I, does,
1: yeah. He says it a few yeah, times.
3: And I directed it once to Nikhil and then I think I directed it to the audience and then I kinda of directed it up to the sky. And I always felt like the audience's reactions were kind of like a Hmm, yeah, yeah, there's that there's that famous iconic line <laughs> and then he's gonna <laughs> die and then I really put my attention on having a, a really like authentic, genuine death on stage. But now I think back to it and I think about How how that resonates differently. And as an actor, my mind just goes into, oh, you know, so one of the things we can't do now is obviously, you know, cough or or touch our faces. You know, what if Mercutio like coughed in his hands and then touched touched Romeo's face? I mean, that would be such a (laughs) a horrible thing, Uh, you know, like what if he did something that exemplified what that plague actually meant so that he I don't know. I mean, there's 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 just so much more there, you know, and I think the the line resonates on a completely different level, and I'll be honest, like I said earlier, for, for me as an actor, I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't associate that. Like, I didn't do my research. I, I didn't look into it. I, I never looked up Plague. In England I never looked up what the bubonic plague meant or what it was what the symptoms were or you know how many people died and I I know it was a lot I mean I think it was like what like 50% of Europe or something
2: like that it was quite a large number yeah I think um during the Elizabethan period about a quarter of a million inhabitants of England died um so you know there was a there was an outbreak in Norwich that knocked out 25% of the population Mm. just in one summer when Shakespeare was born in 1564, there was an outbreak of plague that killed 200 people. But that was that was 13% of the population of Stratford-on-Avon, um, and including two of his siblings. And his brother Edmund died of the plague, I believe. But uh, he became an actor and was he was he was the lesser-known Shakespeare. He was like the uh, like one of the Baldwin brothers, but okay. who wasn't Al- Alec? He was Edmund. Edmund Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> getting off topic a <laughs> little there. But to say yeah. a plague on both your houses, uh, th- that means the the house, meaning the the whole extended family uh, of, of the Capulets and the Montagues. But also the the to be a plague house meant that everybody was locked into that house. Um, that was their treatment in the end for for the plague. As somebody in and the, the house got the plague. They would be um, the whole house would be boarded up, and everybody in it had to stay there for six weeks. And if another of them died from the plague, I think that added another six weeks. So uh, it was pretty a pretty horrific thing to have to go through.
1: That reminds me now, do you, Andre. This you may remember this, um, but in both times we did it, but I particularly am remembering the studio and Kevin Angula was playing the the second friar, and yeah. he, he there's that the reason why. The end of the play kind of hinges on Romeo not the information not getting back to Juliet and between Romeo and Juliet that Juliet's uh, not really going to be dead, right? That the friar has come up with this plan. So Juliet's going to look dead. Romeo's going to come get her and they're going to go off and, and live a wonderful life. But the letter doesn't get to Romeo, this critical letter saying that that she's actually alive and the whole the passage that why the letter doesn't get there is the second friar gets stuck in a plague house
3: and you always questioned that didn't you i I, did you you, in rehearsal you were like wait why why doesn't he just or someone yes it
1: was well we we spent a lot of time you remember that rehearsal too that's so crazy because we were trying to figure out we could understand what it meant but how to make it clear because the language that shakespeare wrote is very um it's kind of Matter of fact. So I'm, I'm looking at it right now and it's going to, he says, why, basically, why, why didn't you, you know, did, what did Romeo say when I, you gave him my letter? And Friar John says, going to find a barefoot brother out, one of our order to associate me here in this city visiting the sick and finding him, the searchers of the town suspecting that we both were in a house where the infectious pestilence did reign sealed up the doors and would not let us forth so that my speed to mantua there was stayed so he got they got pushed in locked into a plague house and it was so hard to make it clear to a contemporary audience because that situation is so incredibly foreign to us and i just we remember with kevin we just kept trying well if you stress this word or if you say it this way because it's it you know it was such a momentous kind of thing so i think it it really struck me when I was thinking about Romeo and Juliet today that for Shakespeare's audience, as David just said, they would have understood implicitly what that meant. Yeah. And it, it, would, have it would have seemed Yes. Well, yeah. of course, you couldn't get that letter there. You were sealed in for six or more weeks yeah. to this house. You were locked away and that Romeo never would have gotten that letter. So I think it's interesting to see the different, um, pers- you know, the, the how oh, yeah. and a given audience at a given time is going to view a play so incredibly differently. Yeah.
3: And I'm the jerk. I'm the jerk who goes. Oh, you know what? Shakespeare had to figure something out to not get him to leave that place. So yeah, he just, write the, <laughs> he just uh, uh, wrote in something that that you know people boarded him up and, and he couldn't escape. But in fact, it was uh, that's that's again that's me thinking. You know, he had to do
2: something.
1: Andre, right? Andre, <laughs> do you never read the notes at the bottom of the page? I never read the notes. No.
2: <laughs> Ever. Just well, cannot. one of the reasons they think that Shakespeare. Uh, wrote King Lear during uh, a plague outbreak was I think this James Shapiro mentions this in his book and um there's another great book about this uh uh, called Shakespeare the Lodger his life on Silver Street Mm. that he was renting a, a room in Silver Street in North London um what was then North London not now um more central London now but um And he was living with the Montjoys, or Mountjoys, um, who were tire makers. They made um, uh, these head of tire pieces, so wigs and, and crazy jewelry that people would put in. I
1: thought you meant tires? Tires and I too. was thinking, did they have tires? They didn't have they didn't cars. Have cars
2: <laughs> did they? Were
1: there tires on wagons? They hadn't
2: invented cars, but they'd invented tires. They were getting to the car.
1: <laughs> you mean hats? Yeah. Wigs?
2: A- at a head tire, but but okay. but it, it's spelled T Y R E, I think. Um, and uh, uh, she probably was working for the theatres, uh, providing wigs and stuff like that. And that's probably why he knew her. Um, And uh, so he was renting a room in their house, and we won't go into the details of why we know this, but it's a fascinating story. Um, And uh, in, I believe it was 1606, she died in their parish that looks like there was an outbreak of plague because they went from having no deaths to suddenly about 12 in the space of a few weeks. And then she died. And if they were following the practice of the time, the house, including the lodger, if he was there... Would have been boarded in for six weeks. So I guess this theory is that Shakespeare was... was boarded in. Boarded into this house for six weeks. Um, and uh, in that parish...
1: When you say boarded in, you mean they actually nailed a board over the door? They nailed boards
2: over the windows... And they posted a watchman outside the front to make sure nobody came in or, or went out. I mean, in some cases, this guy was a strict guard. And in some cases, he was more like a facilitator that would make sure people inside got their medicine and food and stuff like that. But but would make sure that there was you know minimal contact between inside and outside. Some women, older ladies, would sometimes volunteer to take the job of being locked inside with them so they could... Uh, uh 10 to the sick and they would get paid you know danger money for this because they could quite often die um but if they didn't they you know they walked out with a handsome you know 6 shillings or something like that which probably was a lot of money back then uh
1: so you so the theory is that shakespeare was boarded in to his house during this time yeah. and that's when he wrote king lear
2: king lear and and, and there's in the Paris reg- a parish register, um, there's one of the first instances of the the, the name Cordelia being used in a, Christen- a christening. It was not a popular name at the time. Oh. Um, so uh, there's another, I think his name is Charles Nickel, uh, who wrote another, th- the, he wrote that Silver Street book. Um, and uh, he, he has this theory that that sort of is a big connection for King Lear. Interesting
3: wild jump here. I mean, this is a wild jump, but I'm just saying, you know, King Lear, he goes mad, he is the fool, he goes crazy, you know, getting boarded up and staying self-isolated for long periods of time
2: could
1: make you go a little nutty. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so, yeah. Well, I do think
1: That's it's, it's I, you know, I, 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 thinking about, because David was sharing with me, David as you can see is the historian in the family and of the... It, much more so than I am, or apparently you are, <laughs> Andre. Oh, yeah, oh, <laughs> but he was saying that the sonnets were also some of them, anyway, written probably I think that's during. A theory, like, yeah, is but... a theory, and Venus and Adonis, his first sort of great poem that was published <laughs> in his lifetime. And I was thinking about King Lear, or I think Macbeth is one people are kind of thinking maybe was written during the time, but when the sonnets. That they all, so many of those things have this theme of distance and longing, and a kind of a sense of considering what happens during the, what the meaning of the passage of time is, uh-huh. and these kind of meditations on mortality and separation. Yeah, and I think that thinking of that in terms of being isolated sort of feels very emotionally true to me. Um, I, I wish there was more, David. Well, how well, much really historical can... record is there, or is this sort of people piecing together clues oh, there's, there's, there's not a, and theorizing? Yeah, it's
2: mostly just theoretical. I mean, uh, you know, there's re- it's reasonable to assume the things were published in a, uh, at certain times. And Venus and Adonis certainly was published, I believe, in 1593. Um, and none of Shakespeare's... That was the first thing it had published. Yeah. Can I,
1: I would like just to add that David is reeling off all of these dates without any help from notes. And <laughs> wow. I'm super impressed by his knowledge. Wow. Thank was, you.
3: Everyone. I have a question for the historian. Right. <laughs> okay. The sonnets were letters,
2: were they not? Uh, no, they were just... I mean, the sonnet was a popular form. Of, of a poem and it was like a little exercise uh, that not just Shakespeare, but you know, poets and playwrights, I guess, and, and, and even, you know, amateur writers would, uh, would try and, you know, get a sort of complicated little thought uh, into a, a sonnet. And they were often around the theme of, of, of you know, a love poem. So it was a, a way of expressing love or, a, or, or, or something something of that nature uh, to to an object of admiration. Um, so I, I think, you know, there's all sorts of theories with the sonnets, I don't really know the sonnets too well because um, uh, that, you know, they're, they're really literature that are not really meant to be performed. Um, so it's not really our area so much, but, um, uh, you know, there's all sorts of theories about who he was writing them to and for what reason. You know, so there's were they
1: were, published in his lifetime as a, a book of sonnets. Uh,
2: there, a lot of them were published in his mm-hmm. lifetime, yeah, and some of them were pirated. And uh, there was, a, I think, there was a copy of poems that was that had some of his sonnets, and then some of them. Were were poems that weren't by him. And then some of them were the really bad poems that he'd written for Don Armado in in (gasps) Love's Labour's Lost, and they got included as well. And he must have been horrified because they were examples of really bad poetry, you know, because he was intentionally bad. bad bad, Yeah. yeah. Uh,
3: Idea for your next play Don Armado performing The Lost. sonnets (laughs) sonnets
2: <laughs> i think there's a i a, think there's, in, a, there's a, definitely a, a a niche audience no for it on. but it might be oh, in, in the tens not the...
1: andre's added no pants on <laughs>
2: so, oh okay well there we go no yes. pants
1: on a plague mask reciting the lost <laughs> sonnets it's it's our it's our new avant-garde work with a pie in with, his hand. The, with a pie
2: um <coughs> but venus and adonis yeah it was the first thing that he had published and it was published by his friend richard field was who was a, a a fellow townsman of stratford Stratford and upon Avon um and it was a huge hit it was reprinted many times and uh and he tried to follow it up next year with another big hit the rape of Lucrece oh, um which uh oh, oh we, uh, lost, we, we lost we lost Andre, Andre. well
1: right. that's
2: right um but anyway yeah so uh so that was a very fertile period for Shakespeare doing King Lear and uh, Antony and Cleopatra. And some people think that Macbeth, I think Shapiro in that book suggests that Macbeth was in that um, uh, in that period as well. And I was just reading, and I think I must have known about this, but I've sort of forgotten. But you know this, uh, have you heard of this doctor called Simon Foreman? No. Uh, he was, well, he wasn't really a doctor. He was a bit of a quack. He was an astrologer and a physician. Um, and, uh, uh, a little bit of a scallywag, I guess, but, Ooh,
0: a scallywag. uh,
2: um, but he was very successful in, 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 in helping. I don't know how many people he actually cured, uh, uh, people uh, of the plague in 1595. And he published a book, um, which was called, uh, what was it called? It's called Discourses on the Plague. There's one. There's one for a flight. Buy that one at the airport. Discourses on the Plague by Simon Foreman. And um, he actually apparently contracted the plague and survived it, which is why he was quite happy to go and treat people, um, uh, because he had immunity to it. Um, But his his cures were were not really very helpful. They boiled down to two things. One, keep warm. And the other one was avoid onions. (laughs) <laughs> and And that, according to him, you'd be miraculously cured. I don't think it worked, but um, but there is an intersection between Simon Foreman and Shakespeare in that towards the end of his life, he wrote down four sort of uh, uh passages which are observations of watching Shakespeare plays at the globe. um and one of them was of uh, Cymbeline, one of them was of Winter's Tale, you know, one of them was Richard the Second, which I don't think was Shakespeare's production. And the other was uh, Macbeth, um, and it's quite interesting because he doesn't describe the witches as witches. He describes them as fairies or nymphs, um, which I think is kind of fascinating. Because whenever you, we come to do a production of Macbeth, you know, you're always stuck with, well, how do you do the witches in any way that's, you know, obviously you don't want them to be with pointed hats and stuff like that. Um, uh, how do you make them scary, or or even just otherworldly? And I think that's really fascinating that he chose to describe them in this production as fairies or nymphs, because that's obviously what Shakespeare's company had put on stage. So he wasn't directed directly thinking them as as witches. And I think they're not even in the text described as witches; they're just called weird sisters. The weird aren't they? sisters. Um, so that gives you. Well, they I-
1: they do they do engage in a deed without a name.
2: Right. I mean, obviously, they're you know they're, they're fairly malevolent um, things, even as he describes them. And and obviously, to an Elizabethan, a, a, a fairy wasn't a tiny creature with wings that was you know like, um, waving a wand or whatever they do, like Tinkerbell Bell. Um, you know, they were they were naughty little things, but they they
1: weren't necessarily the picture we have when we think of a witch.
2: Yeah, yeah, they fast... weren't
1: necessarily crones.
2: So when we come back to our production of the Scottish play which is also known as Macbeth uh in the fall um we should maybe look at that that passage from from the plague doctor Simon Foreman.
1: That's a great idea I know we're all really looking forward to being able to get back to work on that production and share it with all of you guys out there um listening to it but uh in the meantime we thought that it would be fun to uh Listen to one of the sonnets, since that was written while Shakespeare was perhaps off-quarantined, away from his theater company, away from his life in London. And we have uh, William Elsman, one of our ensemble members, reading a sonnet for you.
4: Not marble, nor the gilded monuments of princes shall outlive this powerful rhyme, but you shall shine more bright in these contents than unswept stone besmeared with sluttish time. When wasteful war shall statues overturn, and broils root out the work of masonry, nor mars his sword, nor war's quick fire shall burn the living record of your memory. Gainst death and all oblivious enmity shall you pace forth. Your praise shall still find room even in the eyes of all posterity, that wear this world out to the ending doom. So, till the judgment that yourself arise, you live in this and dwell in lovers' eyes.
1: Thank you so much, Belle. That was beautiful. It's been really nice to see lots of people and celebrities and different people posting their sonnets on different social media platforms so uh, if you want to get some more sonnets you can search for those and i'm sure you'll find i saw helen mirren this morning Uh, that was
2: wow pretty
1: pretty amazing yeah patrick stewart's done one and a number of our actors have done them too so um, it's a great way to stay connected and um, that actually makes me think that one of the things I'm trying to do with this time is reconnect with people and it was great to reconnect with Andre just now in this conversation. I'm trying to call my family more and call my friends more and just talk to more people. David what are you what are you
2: doing? In all my spare time (laughs) now I always I always joke that I don't have any spare time and and now I've got tons of it. Um, uh, Well I've got There's lots of things that need doing around the house. Obviously, I said I was working on the floor, but once that's done, then Henry and I are talking about maybe building a tree house um, in the backyard. And I've been practicing the guitar a lot. When we did Twelfth Night last year, we based a lot of the music, we used songs that I'd found in my grandparents' gramophone collection from the 30s. And uh, I became kind of obsessed with that period and that music just for that show but and um, I sort of started picking those up again and trying to play some of these lovely old songs that I'd never even heard before um so i'm I'm hoping to by the end of this have a little repertoire of those, and uh I don't know, mulling over some writing projects, but none of them are as good as King Lear <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's all right we we none of us expect you to write King Lear. <laughs> no offense, Sonny.
2: Sorry, None taken.
1: And uh, what we're working on for next week, we'll let uh, Carolina's got some uh, great episode coming up next week, and she's going to tell you all about it. And just before we pass it back to Carolina, I want to give an extra special shout out to Carolina, who sort of started, I think, a week, a week before things started to look like we were going to be shutting down as our new marketing assistant in that interim, she's now been uh, put in charge of uh, producing a podcast, and she is amazing. She threw herself into the whole ISC project, and it's been great. She's been such an asset. So thank you, Carolina. Shout out to Carolina. Look forward to all of you getting a chance to meet her in person. And I think that's it for David and I right now. Bye. Bye. Once again, thank you to Bill Elsman for the wonderful
0: reading of Sonnet 55 and special guest Andre Martin for his invaluable input. Next Tuesday on Artbreak, we will be discussing witchcraft with Kaleon, cast member of our postponed production of Macbeth, and Kaleon's sister, Sonica, who is a clinical psychologist specializing in cultural psychology. As always, you can receive more info about ISC on iscla.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IndieShakes, or check out our Facebook page. Don't forget to donate on our website to help us fundraise for our Griffith Park Free Shakespeare Festival this summer. Your contribution helps cultivate the future of ISC, as well as Griffith Park Free Shakespeare Festivals to come. See you next week. Stay home and wash your hands.